You know, one of the things I love about Colorado is that it has four distinct seasons. We've had a really hot summer, but I'm so excited because my favorite season is coming up really soon, Lord willing, and that's the season of fall. And I love it because I can wear layers of clothes and the trees around us, the leaves start to change colors. We get to see the beautiful aspens. And one day we wake up and we look toward the mountains and once again, they're dusted with snow. You know, you might be thinking my favorite season is winter. Maybe you love to ski and hot chocolate, great meals with friends and family, and, and well, of course, Christmas. Or maybe it's spring because, well, everything is coming to life again. The grass is turning green. The, the leaves are returning. Flowers are in bloom. Or maybe you love the summer because it's a slower pace of life. The, the days are longer and there's more time for leisure time with, with family and friends. One of the things I love about the seasons is it's really a, a picture of transformation that God sort of hardwired into all creation. That cycle of death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus showed us by going to the cross and rising again. It gives us hope that transformation is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also know that we're complex people. We have so many parts of our lives. We have our relationships and our finances, the way that we think, our emotions, our bodies, and, and all of those various parts of our lives that we have to manage. And there's so much. I think about that scripture in 2 Corinthians uh, that tells us that if we're in Christ, that behold, all new things have come, that the old has gone, that we're essentially a new creation. But unfortunately, a lot of us feel stuck. We know we're supposed to be a, a new creation, but if we're honest, we look at our lives and see this part of our life or maybe another part of our life and to say, well, Jesus, why haven't you transformed that part of my life yet? Why haven't you changed the way that I think? Or why haven't you healed my relationships or, or my spiritual encounter with you? Why hasn't that changed? And yet others of us, we look at the parts of our life and we say, well, Jesus, I want you to transform all of this, but, but I want you to leave this part of my life alone. I'm so excited to invite you to come hang out with us for nine weeks starting September 8th at South Fellowship Church because we're starting a brand new series called Transformed. And in this series, we're going to explore what transformation really means, how Jesus intends to transform us from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that all parts of our lives, Jesus can and will transform. And I want to invite you to invite family and friends to come. This is a great opportunity to come and to learn about transformation and to see how Jesus wants to make all things new. I'd love to see you starting September 8th. Come hang out with us as we explore transformation together. Good morning, South. I uh, hope you're having a great weekend. I'm actually away this weekend, so I'm really gonna miss you guys. But I'm so excited because you're in for a real treat because today we have Josh Suddeth, our student pastor, preaching uh, the gospel this morning. And, and I'm so proud of Josh. He and his team are doing an amazing job. He's a great leader. Uh, he's leading students, helping them live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. He, uh, he and his team are just doing some really, really great things. And I know he has a really great word to share with us today. So, so lean in, listen up, and give Josh a warm South Fellowship welcome. See you soon. As a, a young boy, I remember my dad taking me on a camping trip in the Nanahala Forest in the southern Appalachian Mountains. Now, if you're a rugged Colorado adventurer, you might turn your nose up at our itinerary, but for me, this was adventure, a weekend with my dad in the woods. Maybe I'd get to ask him some of life's questions. Maybe he'd share a little bit of his heart with me. I might share a little bit of my heart with him. 
we'd share some holy moments together. We'd make a few meals over a fire and spend the night, and then the next morning get up and brave the class two rapids of the Nanahala River <laughs> in our own personal rafts called duckies. As it turns out, however, we were not the only ones who had decided to make camp in those woods that weekend. Word had made its way around the campsites that there was very likely an unwelcome guest who had also decided to make camp in those woods. My clicker's not working. Not working. There it is. Eric Rudolph, top 10 on the FBI's most wanted, the Olympic Park bomber who for the next five years would spend his time in those woods evading the authorities. Eric Rudolph had decided to make camp somewhere near ours. Now, I was a 12-year-old boy. This was no measurable threat. I had packed a Swiss Army knife, and I knew how to whittle. <laughs> But whatever my face on the outside, on the inside, I was freaking out. I wondered why God had brought me into the woods to meet my demise. I slept with a couple eyes open that night, and I needed the sun to come up a little sooner than was planned the next day. I wanted to get in that boat, paddle as fast as I could, and get to where we were going. And looking back on that weekend, I... I wonder if I missed out on some holy moments with my dad. And I wonder what it would have been like if you rewind with me a few thousand years to be a young Levite boy traveling with the Israelites in the desert on the way to the promised land. Now, as I was thinking about jumping into this account and by the way, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. That's where we're going to start this morning. As you're turning there, i got to share with you, um, Larry spoke last week. And Larry and I, about a month ago, chose the passages that we would be preaching on. But we didn't tell each other what those would be. And it just so happened in the way that the Lord worked it out that the passage that I'm talking about this morning falls in sequence in this account just after the passage that he spoke about last week. I thought that was pretty cool. Coincidence, maybe not, maybe not. And I was reminded of a, a quote of a pastor that I follow, a man named Mark Dever, who wrote a book called The Message of the Old Testament. And in that book, he says that the Old Testament is the... My clicker's not working. Y'all are going to have to help me out. Uh, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And then he wrote a book called The Message of the New Testament, in which he says that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And whether that saying is original to him or not, I don't know. But I know that he's echoing the words of Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, who says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's look at that first verse together in Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. It says, On the day that the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. And God is making a statement here 
that on the day when the people have brought what they have to set up this tabernacle and its construction and the roof goes up, he is saying to them by covering it with a cloud that whatever they encounter along this journey, whatever they're about to experience, whatever practices they engage in underneath this tent, I am here and I am covering it. And as we jump into this account, I I want you to be reminded from that verse in Romans that whatever it was that you walked in with this morning, whatever the pace of your life was like this week, whatever spiritual practices you may have engaged in or didn't, whatever pain you may have encountered this week that you didn't see coming, you're here now. And we're going to dive in. And this account was written so that we might learn to endure and that we might be encouraged to have hope. The centerpiece of this campsite was a tabernacle, a sanctuary, the place where the people of God practiced the ways of God. Encamped immediately around the tabernacle were the Levites, those that God assigned to care for the structure. They were in charge of the setup and teardown, the maintenance, the care of the holy things. And if I'm a 12-year-old Levite boy... This is my tribe. Then on the outskirts of the camp, the remaining tribes of Israel, each assigned their, assigned their plot of land by the Lord. And God was really clear. The Levites were to be the only ones that would go near the tabernacle. And if anyone else from any of the other tribes dared go near it, they were to be put to death. Now, if I'm a 12-year-old Levite boy, I might have a little fun with this one. Invite that kid over from the tribe of Dan that I'm not too fond of. (laughs) Draw a few lines in the sand. Come at me, bro. See what happens. You know, because this is a pretty special operation we've got going on here, and my family's clearly a pretty special part of it, and I'm a pretty special part of my family, and that makes me pretty special. And whatever face I'm projecting on the outside, as young people tend to do on the inside, I got some questions. What's really going on here? What's this whole tabernacle thing about? I mean, I mean, aren't we supposed to be headed somewhere pretty awesome? And I'm watching the older people around me. I'm not looking at you, Mike. You're, you're a young person. I'm watching the older people around me, and I'm, I'm wondering, how are, how are they doing it? Whether they think I'm watching or not, I'm watching, and I'm learning. What are they gaining from all these practices that they're engaging in? And if we begin to ask those questions and, and wrestle with these things, if we lack perspective, we can get really backwards really quick, and and we, we can begin to want to control our own destiny and, and, and travel at our own pace along the journey. I don't know if you've ever taken a long trip with a large group of people, maybe a mission trip or a family vacation or a journey or a long hike of some sorts. If you've had this experience, you've undoubtedly learned that people tend to travel at their personally desired pace. We pee in bottles in our family on road trips because we are a family of all boys. 
except for my sweet wife, who is in fact not a boy, and whose idea it was to travel to pee in bottles in the first place. That's our personally desired pace. Isn't it true, though, that our, our pace is often determined by our perceived destination? I mean, this is why people who are stuck in lines at the Cancun airport trying to get into Mexico are always so pissed off. They're all wearing shirts that say tequila on the beach. Unless, of course, they're a youth pastor traveling with 25 high school students, in which case they're thinking extremely holy thoughts about their upcoming service to God. Not that I would know. Not that I would know. The people of Israel have been promised a destination. But, but it's my impression from reading the rest of this passage that maybe God has more for the people of Israel than just a destination. Maybe because he's their God and he's walking with them and traveling with them, maybe he's sensed that they've become a little too destination-minded. Maybe they've forgotten about their family, what it's like to be present with somebody or to recognize when he's present with them. Maybe he wants them to experience what it feels like with him in the holy moments, experiencing his presence. And so the people of Israel are made to travel at the pace of their God. And I wonder if that's a question that maybe we could ask corporately and individually. What does it mean for us to travel at the pace of our God? And so here's how God goes about slowing the Israelites' roll. If you read with me in Numbers chapter 9, starting in verse 15. It says, On the day that the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening until morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. And wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. And when the cloud remained over the camp for a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days, and at the Lord's command, they would encamp, and at his command, they would set out. I mean, why the repetitive nature of this text? You can read on. I'm only halfway through, and it continues the Israelites obeyed, the Israelites obeyed, the Israelites obeyed. The Israelites are developing a pattern of obedience. The Israelites are getting really good at being really good. Now, I'm not just a Levite teenager with weekly chores at this point. I'm, I'm a little frustrated. I mean, I'm, I'm a part of the help here, and you I mean, we got to keep setting up and tearing this thing down every time the darn cloud moves and who's controlling this thing anyway and why can't I access this Google Doc? <laughs> what does it mean for us to travel at the pace of our God?
I didn't ask for this pace. I mean, I'm in middle school now, and I'm about to be in high school. And high school is where my life is really going to start taking off, and then in college, things are actually going to get real for me, and man, I can't wait to get the heck out of here and get my own apartment. I'm a business person, and I mean, my job is pretty good right now, but the people around me kind of suck. And God, you've given me gifts and talents, and you've even given me maybe dreams and visions of what life might look like three to five years from now, but can we get on with it? Can we get on with it? And I don't know about you, but for me, I tend to get the most frustrated with the pace of my life when I become the most consumed with myself. I was a 24-year-old living in Nashville, working in the wealth management field. I had a back office, spent my time doing investment, trading on the stock market, and I had begun to develop gifts and talents and dreams and visions and hopes about traveling the country and getting out and speaking to people and sharing Jesus and what he was doing in my life. And I remember I called my dad one day in that office and I said, Dad, um, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going out on my own. I'm going to buy a, an RV and travel the country and I'm going to be an itinerant preacher. You know what my dad said to me? All the older dads in the room know what my dad said to me. <laughs> Put down the phone. Go back to your office. Do your job. And stop thinking of yourself as the next Messiah. It was a holy moment. It was a hard moment for me. I put down the phone all right. In fact, they may or may not have had to buy me a new phone for my office. <laughs> and what do you do when the pace of your life isn't what you desired? Look for the holy moments. Look for the holy moments. And maybe they're hard moments. Maybe they're put there to teach you to endure right where you're at. Maybe they're meant to encourage you to give you hope, but they're all around you in the people that you're sitting next to today, in the place where you've been put in your workplace right here and right now, not three to five years from now. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a 19th century poet, says it this way, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. Well, eventually in this account, 12 people are sent out to explore the promised destination. And 10 out of the 12 of them completely freak out when they get outside the camp. The reality of life outside the camp hits them really hard. Enemies, danger, potential suffering, Maybe life in the camp under the cloud was better after all. Ten out of the twelve bring back a negative report, claiming the land is too big and the people too dangerous and seemingly unconquerable, and two out of the twelve bring back a positive report. 
10 out of the 12 prove they haven't learned anything along the way. The cloud hadn't lifted at this point. There was no direct command from the Lord to take the land. They had only been sent to explore. And 10 out of the 12, what have they learned about experiencing his presence? About discerning his spirit when the cloud was lifting and when the cloud was settling, were they paying attention? Or had they just become really good at being really good? Had they gotten so head down in their practices that they forgot to look for the one who was leading them? Joshua and Caleb, maybe, maybe they learned something. They bring back a report that's really interesting to me. This is how they say it. They say the land that we explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. If the Lord is pleased with us. Maybe Joshua and Caleb along the way had been paying attention and trying to discern his spirit, and maybe they'd, maybe they'd listened or, or watched as there were times along the journey when God was pleased with the people of Israel, and maybe they sat in it and got used to how that felt. And the times when God was frustrated with the people of Israel, maybe they got used to how that felt. And they've developed a certain confidence over God's leading. And they, they know at least, at least, if God is pleased with us, he will lead us there. And Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 10 that he doesn't want us to be unaware, brothers, that all of our forefathers were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Or did they? Or did they? I mean, they ate the food and drank the drink, but anybody can walk in here and put a little money in the basket and enjoy a worthless amount of grape juice once a month. And God will, and Paul will go on to say that nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. I wonder if the practices of their life were lacking something. I mean, they were, they were good practices. They were God-ordained practices, and they were regular practices. But you and I, we can get backwards with this stuff really quickly, just as easily, just like they can. And today, at the end of the service, we have an opportunity to, to take communion. I'm 34 years old. I became a Christian when I was four. That's 30 years worth of grape juice. <laughs> so often for me, I've come to the table, and I've, I've approached the, tra the table trying to do penance, maybe, for the person that I should have been that month, but I know that I wasn't. And I forget that that's not what the table's about. The table's about remembering his once and for all sacrifice when he went to the cross for us and was put in a place that he shouldn't have been, but we know that he was. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 19, will say it this way. He says, when, 
When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law required nearly everything to be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that is only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven again and again the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year with blood not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But it says now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. For just as it is destined for men to die once and after that to face the judgment, so was Christ sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, And that was the perfect will of God South that Christ would be sacrificed once on our behalf for our forgiveness. And later in the book of Hebrews, the writer will say that by that will, you and I have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And what do you do when the practices of your life are feeling desolate? Remember, remember that you've already been made holy. So when you come to the table today, don't come to do penance for the person that you should have been, but you know that you weren't. Come to remember, as Brennan Manning says, that he loves you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Listen to what happens to the people who bring back the report in Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 36. So so the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. And Moses... Next one. Thank you. And Moses reported this incident to the community of the Israelites. And notice their response. When you and I encounter pain in our life that we didn't see coming, we respond in all kinds of different ways. And I've run the gamut, and you probably have too. The Israelites' response is interesting to me. They, they mourned bitterly, number one, and don't miss that word, Bitterly, this was a a tragic moment of pain for them. I mean, 10 of their brothers died of a plague before the Lord, and they were killed for disobeying a command? Nope. Seemingly, they were killed for a moment of lack of trust. this This was hard to take. I mean, we didn't deserve this as a community. You just sent us in to explore the land. And here's how they respond. Early the next morning, they 
went up toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will, we will go now. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. They, they repent and turn toward the Lord. Or do they? Or do they? Moses responds to them, and I don't have it up there, but he, he says to them, um, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. The Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there and, and you will fall. And, and is it possible that sometimes, look at the next verse with me. It says in their presumed, in their presumption, they went up though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Is it possible that oftentimes in our presumed obedience, we are missing the point? How often do we obey the Lord out of a deep sense of guilt? We, we repent, we we turn toward the Lord, we go and do the right thing. Maybe we feel like we have to make up for something we did in the past. Maybe we feel like the pain is our fault and God is punishing me for something that's in my life. And we run to obey the Lord. And as we run to obey the Lord, we are running away from the Lord. And, and what do you do? when the pain in your life isn't what you deserve. Look for the Holy One. Don't be so quick to try and run and make it right and fix it on your own terms. It's, 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 already, it's already been fixed. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. I don't know if you remember several years ago, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. The, if, if you've followed the Christian music world for a while, see if you don't know who that is, Stephen Curtis Chapman was a Christian music artist. And the Chapmans have six kids. And um, I was, when I was living in Nashville, I was attending the church where the Chapmans, a place called Christ Community Church. And uh, the Chapmans went through a tragic experience in their family. They... They lost their little girl, Maria, I think she was four years old, to a tragic car accident in their driveway involving one of their sons and, and a vehicle. And Maria was killed in their driveway, and they went to the funeral. And I remember hearing the story there at Christ Community that after the funeral, the family came back to the house, and they walked in their house, and they, they saw a piece of paper on the kitchen table, and on the piece of paper was a drawing that Maria had done before she died. And on the piece of paper was a, a flower. The flower had six petals, and the Chapmans have six kids, and one of the petals was colored in. And underneath the flower, it, there was just one little word that Maria had written, and Stephen said that she had never written this word before, but, but underneath the flower, she had written the word, see. S-E-E-C. And it was a holy moment for the Chapman family. And in Job chapter 42, verse 5, 
You can flip to that. Job says, my, my ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. And I saw that Tim Keller remarked about this, that Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God, and that was enough. And when you feel like the pain of your life isn't what you deserve, look for the Holy One and seek his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, uh, help us Lord, to, to see the holy moments that you've given us and the people who are right here with us. Help us to slow down a little bit along this journey and to pay attention to what your presence feels like. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you've seen us when we come to this table today. And over it all, Lord, covering all of it, help us to see you as we encounter the unexpected and those things that we didn't see coming in our lives. Lord, help us to look for you and help us to find you. In Jesus' name, amen.